0: Great to see everybody this morning. Uh, we're going to start off with some scripture reading from Romans three this morning, so you guys will stand. Uh, honor of reading of the words, words, of the Lord. It's verses twenty-one through thirty-one. It's what Pastor George is going to be talking to us about this morning. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Dear Father, we do just thank you this morning uh, so much, Lord, because we are all definitely sinners, Lord, every single one of us. We all fall short. But because of your great love, Lord, because of Jesus, what he did, Lord, um, we're not staying there. You see us now as righteous and holy, and it happens through faith, Lord, and we're just so grateful this morning. Help us this morning in everything that we say and do, and as we worship you through these songs, Lord, help us above all uh, to, to have the heart attitude. Uh, that your name would be, um, that your name would be glorified in everything we do, Lord, and that you would be magnified in your name. We pray, Amen.
1: Sing with me. Oh, Christ, be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, Christ be magnified in the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. The creation. Suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry from north to south. Hey man. Stand strong and worship you And if it puts me in the fire I'll rejoice cause you're there too I won't be for my feet. I'll hold fast to what is true And if the cross brings transformation Then I'll be crucified with you Cause death is just the torment And it's your end. I'll join you in your sufferings Then I'll join you when you rise When you return in glory With all the angels and the saints My heart will still be singing And my song will be the same Oh, Christ be magnified I am not skilled to understand What God has willed, what God has planned I only know at his right hand Stands one who is my Savior I take him at his word and deed I just say, this I mean, and in my heart, I find the need of him to be my savior. That he would leave his place on high and come for simple man to die. It's strange, so what did I Before I knew my Savior My Savior loves, my Savior lives My Savior's always there for me My God He was, my God He is My God is always gonna be My Savior loves, my Savior lives My Savior's always Dying, let me breathe. my strength, my solace, from the spring. That he who lives to be my king, should to be my savior? <laughs> that he would leave his place on high more simple man to die, you counted strange, so once did I, for I knew my Savior, my Savior loves, my Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me, my God he was, my God he is, my God is always gonna be. Savior loves, I Savior this, I Savior's always there for me. My God it was, my God He is, my God is always gonna be. My Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me. My God, He was, my God He is, my God is always gonna be, my Savior loves, my Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me. My God he was, my God he is, my God is always gonna be. My Savior loves, my Savior lives. My Savior's always there for me, my God it was, my God he is, my God is always gonna be, my Savior loves, my Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me, my God it was, my God he is, my God is always gonna be, my Savior lives. My savior loves, my savior lives, my savior loves, my savior lives.
0: You serve a good father, amen.
1: Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of one, they think you're like, but i heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Who I am. Oh, and I see men here it. searching around. Far and wide, but I know we're all searching for answers. Only you provide, cause you know just what we need before we stay a word. You're a good, good father to you, are to you, are. You are perfect in all of your ways. Lord, you're perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways to us. Oh, it's love so undeniable. I can hardly speak. So unexplainable, love. I can hardly think as you call me. Deeper still as you call me. Deeper still as you call me. Deeper, deeper still into love. Love, love, you It's who you are. It's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am.
0: Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father thank you so much that you're such a good father, Lord, that you loved us with a love that we can't even fathom, enough to send your own son to die for us. Lord, that you open our eyes to the truth, the fact that we are sinners and we need a Savior. And as Spurgeon says, Lord, I'm a great sinner, but I serve a great Savior. We're so grateful for that this morning. We pray, Lord, that you just bless uh, George as he brings the the word of God to us, that you would prepare our hearts for edification, and that, um, Lord, we'd be willing to apply what we learned today, and, and that we'd honor you in everything we say and do, and name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated.
2: I was watching some of the football games yesterday. I just noticed that uh, they've named uh, the stadium in Auburn Pat Dye Field, and they've named uh, the field in Georgia after somebody, and uh, they've named uh, Tiger Stadium Death Valley where LSU's dreams come to die? <laughs> uh, how many Saturdays does Alabama, Auburn, LSU, and Arkansas all lose on the same day? And don't be smug about it, UAB. Your, your day's coming. <laughs> but uh, I thought it might be appropriate These railings, they were, in essence, really put there for people like Dr. Hugh and myself. And so why not make them the Dr. Hughley (laughs) Professor Marange railings? (laughs) Or if you want to wait till I die, that's all right. It is a privilege to come before you once again. Uh, it really is. I know Dr. Hugh agrees with me. It, it's just a special privilege when you can speak to the people of, of your own church. And I'm part of the flock. And uh, uh, I love you dearly. And uh, our time together hadn't been as long as, as some others. But it's just been a a wonderful time since 2013, 2014, somewhere in there, where we determined that we were going to merge together. Some people said, don't do it. But we felt the urging of God saying, do it, do it. And it's been a wonderful experience, and I hope that uh, it never, never ends until he comes. And you're a part of it. And... uh, I'm a part of it, Dr. Hugh is a part of it, and uh, just very, very grateful and privileged for the honor to open God's Word. Way back in the days of Rome, uh, the Roman poet, a guy named Horace, uh, he was criticizing the playwrights of his day. He felt that uh, the plays they were writing were too shallow, poorly developed plots, Sort of like Hallmark Network. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. (laughs) But we want to watch every one of them, don't we? It's it's addictive. But uh, he made this comment. He said, don't bring a God onto the stage until you have first developed a problem that demands a God to solve it. Well, I think that Paul had that in his mind when he wrote the letter to the Romans because uh, in the first three chapters or uh, through the middle of of the the third chapter, the first thing Paul did was develop the idea of sin. Uh, His overall theme in this book is the righteousness of God. And he wanted to first of all show that It's absent in humanity. Man doesn't have the righteousness of God because of sin. And uh, Jesus had already shot a volley across the bow of the leaders of Israel. I'm sorry, I've got... uh, I don't have uh, handouts, but I do have the overhead available for you to try to follow me. Uh, We're looking at Romans chapter 3, and I'm calling our message today The Joy of Righteousness. And referred to Jesus in Matthew 20 when he confronted the religious leaders. And he said, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. These men prouded prouded themselves. They, They were... They were arrogant about their righteousness because they kept the law and they memorized the law and all these things. Of course, they didn't want to deal with what was going on inside. And Jesus made it clear that you're just as guilty for what you think as for what you do. But nevertheless, he made it clear that if the standard for righteousness are your leaders, you're in trouble. Your righteousness had better go beyond them. And then, uh, in Romans chapter 3, as Paul is coming to the end of this section on sin, Paul speaks, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. He says, You Jews... Pride yourself about how you keep your law. You don't keep it. You're condemned by it. And your mouth will be closed. All the world will be accountable to God. He's going to hold men accountable for their lack of righteousness. They have their self-righteousness, but God says that gets you nothing. You must have my righteousness. Righteousness. And you'll never be able to attain to that in the things you do in your works and your good deeds and all these things he continues because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin god gave israel the law to teach them just how sinful they were because he gave them a standard that they were to attain to that they could not attain to Now, uh, be honest if you were walking along and you saw a sign keep off the grass what is the first thing you think about you want to go step on it don't you you see that's proof that you're condemned by the law The law doesn't bring out the best in you. The law brings out the worst in you. And it did that for Israel. Uh, And Paul is making it clear that everyone is held accountable for sin. The Jew, the Gentile, all the world will be held accountable. Um, This passage that we're going to go through in just a second... Uh, uh, i want us to 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 read it first verses 21 he says but now apart from the law major break in thought pattern apart from the law now the righteousness of god has been manifested well paul you just said that it wasn't being manifested in humanity it's not but it's being manifested now, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There it is. The righteousness of God is now being manifested when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the access to that righteousness. It's the righteousness through faith in Christ For all those who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned. And that means just that. For all have sinned. It's historical fact. One of the reasons we know that's true is that our insurance companies keep telling us that one out of every one person will die sooner or later. Why is that? I run. I jog. I'm on Weight Watchers i do all kinds of exercises i'm genetically of good health my grandfather lived to be 140 years old and my grandmother was 139 and and on and on Glenda and i met some people in our neighborhood the other day and show you how small the world is she at one point said do you know gary green and i said do i know gary green yes i taught with gary for 12 15 years He taught at Southeastern. He taught English. I said he was the poster child for fitness. He was still wearing the same size clothes he wore in high school. And he got the faculty into the intramural football uh, basketball program at the college. And so we were having to play basketball against the students, which didn't seem fair. And Gary Green, one day, they heard a thud from his office. And somebody went and looked at his office, and Gary Green was dead as a doornail. He had a massive coronary. His head hit the top of his desk, and that was the end of the physical life of Gary Green. But they were friends with Gary and his wife. And uh, it, why do I tell you that? It, it, it is a, a small world. But, they're, they're a, but all have sinned. Even Gary, the fact that he died is proof that he was under the judgment of Adam's sin. He was also born again, and he had the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But all have sinned, and continually, day by day by day, fall short of the glory of God. You try it every day. Today, I'm going to do it. I'm going to live a perfect life today. And boom, you'll blow it either before breakfast or after breakfast or lunch or supper or before you go to bed. We're not perfect. We, we wrestle with this, this, this nature in us that wants to be disobedient to what God uh, would otherwise have us do. And as believers, he's given us a new nature. And so as Paul says in Romans 7, every day you're battling a war. You have to make a choice. Who will I surrender to? Will I give in to the flesh, which is under the, the, the authority of, of Lucifer, or will I give in to Christ, the Spirit, who dwells in me? <clears throat> but these people, uh, they are being justified as a gift by the grace, uh, by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting... It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. By the way, the the Greek expression there is meganoito. It's translated, may it never be. Perish the thought. Don't even think about something like that. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, this is a, a wonderful passage, and not because I say so. It's a wonderful passage because uh, so many great men of God uh, who've gone before us, that's been their opinion. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British pastor, said, it's a foolish thing to say, perhaps, but I was going to say that... If I were asked, in my opinion, which is the most important and crucial passage in the whole of Scripture, I would have to include Romans 3, 21 to 26, part of the passage that we're looking at at this moment. John Calvin said, There is not probably in the whole Bible a passage which sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God in Christ. I mean, if you miss that, you've missed the passage. That's what it says that the righteousness of God is in Christ Jesus for those who are sinners, but who believe that Christ died for our sins. William R. Newell, he said, Let us most diligently read, ponder, yea, and commit to memory verses 21 to 26. For it is God's greatest statement of justification by faith. It's sort of the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. One more, Donald G. Barnhouse. He said, I'm convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the whole Bible. Understand them, and you will understand the whole Bible fail to understand to comprehend their true meaning and you'll be in the darkness concerning most of scripture for here is the revelation of the being of God and the nature of his being here is the revelation of sin and of the depths of sin here is the revelation of God's righteousness and the infinite demands and provisions of that righteousness here the mouth of those that would slander God because of his free pardon of sinners are closed forever. Here is the vindication of the nature and character of God, righteous in all that he does. I agree with them. I think this is one of the greatest portions of Scripture in all of God's revelation. And believe it or not, This is really not uh, what I want to devote the bulk of my time to. But I just felt that we have to look at it to get where I want us to go, which will be chapter 4. But um, what do you know about justification? Some of you would say, well, I know quite a bit. I've studied the scriptures. Amen to that. Others are saying, well, I know how to spell it. But I really am not uh, too clued in on just what it means. Well, today's your lucky day, because the Apostle Paul wants to explain to you what justification really means. A guy named Alan Johnson, who wrote a commentary on Hebrews, uh, he tried to outline it this way. And that may be too small for you uh, to read. Uh, I I should have blown it up. But... He said that, first of all, in verse 21, the righteousness of God is not by the law. That's why it starts out, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been witnessed by the, the uh, prophets uh, and the law, but it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. It's a belief issue, not an achieve issue. You must believe, not achieve. You must accept as truth the reality that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and he came on a mission to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And he did that on the cross of Calvary. But he says the righteousness of god is not by the law so if there's anyone here who thinks that they're going to achieve that righteousness through the law you're wrong no jew can do it no gentile can do it the law was given so that through it we become conscience of sin the mosaic law is an instrument not uh, of justification but of condemnation. That statement was made by the former librarian of Dallas Seminary, John Whitmer, who uh, has written the commentary in the uh, Bible Knowledge uh, Commentary, which is published by the seminary. Secondly, he says the righteousness of God is the righteousness of faith. It comes through faith. It doesn't come through effort. It doesn't come through achieving. It comes through believing. God's righteousness is received through faith, not works, not self-merit. The Jew and the Gentile alike, they're both imputed by faith. Both Jew and Gentile are descendants from Adam. So when he says all have sinned, he's referring to not just Gentiles. The Jew would say, well, I know they're sinners. They're filthy dogs. But God says, but you're a sinner too. Just because you have the law doesn't mean you're righteous. Far from it. Not a single human being except Christ himself and by his own merit can measure up to the glory of God. Verses 24 to 26, he says the divine plan of communicating the righteousness of God involves these great theological concepts. First of all, justification, dikao, which means to declare righteous or to secure a favorable verdict, God now views the sinner as if he were righteous in his standing. He's acquitted in God's court. He doesn't say that you, you no longer have sin, but he says, in my presence, when I look at you, I declare you righteous on the basis of what your, my son did for you and your faith in what he did for you. In the concept of grace, undeserved favor, God's riches at Christ's expense. And it comes as a gift, which means literally without a cause. In John chapter 5, John chapter 15, Jesus said, they hated me without a cause. Same word that's used here for for grace. Uh, uh, It's a gift. It's not something you merit. It's something that God bestows because he loves you. He sent his son to the cross because he loves you. His wrath says destroy them. But his love says no, I'll pay the penalty so that I could maintain my justice and be able to justify them who don't deserve it. But I give it to them as a gift. Redemption. Sin must be dealt with. And that's the reason Christ went to the cross. He shed his blood. He paid the penalty and redeemed us from our sin. And then the word propitiation is used in verse 25. Hilasterion. God is satisfied fully with the punishment upon his son. His anger is satisfied. All that sin demands has been accomplished. And that allows him to be gracious to the sinner without offending his righteousness. One word synonym for propitiation is satisfaction. Satisfaction. God is satisfied. With what his son accomplished on the cross. So much so that he can now redeem sinful people because the penalty has been paid. God's wrath has been satisfied, his holiness has been satisfied. So now he can act in his grace and be a redeeming God. God's righteousness is vindicated. Uh, interesting uh, in, in verse 25 uh, of this passage, um, I got skip it says God displayed publicly whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. passed over. The sins previously committed. That's referring to everybody before the cross. They died in faith of what God promised he would do. He would send a deliverer. He made promises, and they believed those promises. And so God imputed them with righteousness, even though the atonement had not yet been made. It was sort of like salvation on the layaway plan. Uh, They didn't see Christ on the cross, literally. But the scriptures taught them that God was going to send the seed of of Abraham. And he would be the Messiah of Israel. And he would be the Redeemer for the sins of the whole world. And so before the cross, people's faith looked forward to what God promised to do. And on that faith, God declared them righteous. Righteous. But then he goes on and says for the demonstration at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our faith looks backward to the cross. I wasn't there. You weren't there. It happened 2,000 years ago, but it happened. And when Christ was dying on the cross, he was dying for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. And so our faith looks to what he did do. Our faith looks to the accomplished work of Christ. Their faith looked to the future work of Christ. But from the heathen point of view, they would say, well, you're supposed to be a righteous, holy God. These people are sinning, and you're not doing anything about it. I mean, why don't you lower the boom on them? Well, it's because he says it's coming. My wrath will be displayed, but also my grace will be displayed to those who believe. But in the Old Testament, God, uh, in his forbearance, he passed over the sins previously committed. And in the present time, that he might be just, how can he still be just? Because he didn't sweep our sins under the rug. He put his son on the cross who didn't deserve to die and he died as our substitute and he can be the justifier he can be the one who can declare anyone righteous who believes that Jesus Christ died for him or for her for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law theologian previous generation, he made this comment about God's divine righteousness and his, uh, his divine judgment. He said, for 4,000 years, the spectacle presented by mankind to the whole world, whole moral universe was, so to speak, a continual spectacle, with the exception of some great examples of judgments. Divine righteousness seemed to be asleep. One might have even asked if it existed. Men sinned here below, and yet they lived. They sinned on, and yet they reached in in safety a hoary old age. Where was the wages of sin? It was this relative impurity which rendered a solemn manifestation necessary. At the cross, God said, Enough's enough. And here's what I'm going to do. In fulfilling my promise to those before you and of giving a foundation for those after you, I'm going to take my son on the cross and punish him for your sins. The weight of the world will be on him. And that's why Jesus the night before was sweating drops of blood. It wasn't that he was going to be nailed to a tree. I mean, that was awful. But that, that was nothing in comparison to drinking the cup that God had determined for him. And drinking that cup was that on the cross, God would put the sins of the world on him. And then he would give him the appropriate judgment, which was a separation and he separated himself from the sun, And you say, well, is that a big deal? Well, it had never, ever, 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 ever happened in all of eternity past. That had never, ever happened until that moment. And you say, well, it only lasted three hours or so. How can that be the moral equivalent to the sins of the world? I mean, we would all have to spend eternity separated from God to pay the penalty. And if he's going to pay it for us, then it seems like he would have to spend eternity separated from God. Ah, that's the rub. Not only was he a sinless man being a substitute, but he was God on that cross. He was the God-man. And being the man made him qualified to be a substitute For the sins of men. But being God, his death, his separation, however brief, was deemed more than equivalent to satisfy the just demands of a holy God upon the sins of the world. And if you're the eternal son, who's the incarnate son of God, and if you're on that cross, and suddenly the father separates himself from you, you say well that's just three hours well if if you're an eternal the eternal son of god three hours was an eternity in in retrospect but he did it in obedience to the father because god so loved the world that's the motivation that he gave his only begotten son how did he give him on the cross that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have probational life for the first three years, and then close guarded inspection for the next ten years, and then we'll go from there. No. You'll have eternal life. It's done. It can't be undone. Uh, You can be disciplined as a disobedient child of God, but you cannot be undone. You cannot become a non-child of God any more than your children when they're born Uh, they're going to determine if they're going to be children who bring honor to you or if they're going to be children who bring dishonor but either way they're your children you can't change that that's heavy stuff isn't it but yet it's simple it's it's the simple gospel what's the alternative well you got to go to church you got to do this do that uh, You've got to un- undergo close inspection and make sure that you don't sin. But if you do sin, go here and, and tell him about it, and he'll he'll, uh, he'll he'll knock off some time or whatever. I, I heard about the the, the fellow who was been Protestant all his life, and he decided he wanted to be Roman Catholic. And so they said, "Well, you're gonna have to go to, go to the priest now when you sin." So he went to the priest and said. I don't understand all this, but I sin. The priest said, what did you do? He said, I stole some lumber. Well, how much did you steal? Well, I built my dog a nice doghouse. Well, that's not too bad. Well, but I also built a three-car garage with a studio apartment above it. Well, now, that, that's a little more serious. Well, I'm not through. I built the doghouse. I built the garage with the studio apartment. And then I built this six-bedroom, five-bathroom, three-story home. The priest said, well, now that is serious. He said, you're going to have to make a novena. And the guy says, well, I don't know what that is, but if you've got the blueprints, I've got the lumber. (laughs) That joke is as old as Moses. Matter of fact, you told it to me, Dr. Hugh, and said that you heard it from Moses. (laughs) But what are the results of that plan? What results from God's plan of redemption? Number one, it excludes boasting. Verses 27 and 28. Who's going to boast? Are you going to boast about your works? No, you can't. Your works won't work. So there's no boasting. If you want to boast, boast about how wonderful your Savior is. Boast about his love for you and what he did for you. And what he continues to do for you day by day by day as he dwells in you and has promised you eternal presence with him in heaven when all this earthly life is over. Boast about that, but don't boast about how good you are or how many good things you've done. And by the way, show me in Scripture, I'm serious, show me in Scripture where it tells you how many good works are enough. How will you ever know when you've done enough good stuff To where then God would say, okay, you're in, you're in. No, they can't do that because it's not there. All they can do is say, keep working, keep working, keep accumulating good things. Whereas we can walk away and say, as of this moment, I am a child of God. I have eternal life. There's no condemnation that will ever come to me. I'm in Christ Jesus. Now and forevermore. And it's done. It can't be undone. Because if there's something you could do to break your salvation, that means that it wasn't really based on grace to start with. It was based on works. But if your salvation is not based on anything you do, then there's nothing you can do to forfeit that salvation. Because it's not based on what you do. It's based on what he did. And he says, I'm offering it to you as a gift. So it excludes boasting. Someone once said that Christianity is simply one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. (laughs) That, 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 That sums it up pretty good. The second thing that it accomplishes is that it Brings the unity of God, to, to uh, uh, it establishes the true unity of God as God of all men. Uh, the Jews were thinking that the Gentiles had to have a separate God, because we have Jehovah. I don't know what they have, but God said, "No, uh, I'm one God, and I'm going to save the, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, and I'll do it by faith in both instances." That way, I maintain my unity. I don't have to do one thing to one group and another thing to another group. And he told Abraham, when he chose him, he said, through you, I will bless all the nations. It was always intended to go to the Gentiles and not be kept as a Jewish kind of thing. The Jewish concept that there's one God, they accepted that. Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema. How can God be the one God of both Jews and Gentiles unless he has a plan of writing men with himself that did not require all men to be circumcised? This plan is the faith plan, and it's equally valid for Jews and Gentiles today. Now, here's where I wanted us to come. Surely somebody in Paul's audience would say, Now, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute, I I, I want to object. Uh, Has this justification by faith alone and Christ alone, has that been around? Was that, you know, in the Old Testament? Because it seems like that's something new. I don't remember hearing that. And so Paul feels that he must justify the gospel of grace. And he says, I'll do it by looking at two people. And those two people are in Romans chapter 4. And in the first five verses, he deals with Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? In other words, what has Abraham done that he can boast about? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then Paul quotes from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the it is referring to his believing, his faith. Abraham's faith was the basis for God to declare Abraham righteous. The word reckon is the word that's used in financial affairs. Uh, You get your bank statement. And there's deposits that are on there, and then there's all the checks that you wrote. And when, when you write a check and they cash it, they come take money out of your bank account. Uh, they, they, they impute it out of your account to that person's account. Uh, you, we've all had to go through, the, well, not all, but most of us uh, with, with our mates, uh, they like to shop, so we give them a credit card. And then they come back, and they tell us they got some stuff. But eventually, the statement comes in the mail, and it's three pages. Whoa, you know, what is all this stuff? And, well, I had to get this for, the, for one of the kids, and I had to get, you know, we have to get, she, she tried to justify it. But they took money out of my account, or made me pay for, I had to pay for all that. I didn't go buy it. But it was charged to my account. And so that's the principle of imputation. And that's what God did with Abraham. Abraham believed God. And it, his believing, his faith, was reckoned, it was imputed to him as righteousness. God took his sin and put it on the cross. And God paid the penalty for his sin. But when a believer believes, at that moment God takes the righteousness of himself and he gives it to the believer. He imputes it to the believer so that now you are as righteous as he is in your standing before him. And on that basis, you're acceptable to God. You'll never be acceptable if you say, oh, I got a whole lot of good stuff I did. Is this good, is this good enough? The answer is going to be no because God won't accept anything that comes from that old nature. Uh, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. What that means is, if a man says, I need you to uh, dig up part of my yard and, and plant some bushes and trees. And then mow the grass, and then I want you to paint the trim on the house. And if you'll do all that, I'll give you $1,000. And I, I get out there and work a week or so, dig up all the old stuff, plant new bushes and trees, cut the grass, trim it, edge it, get it all just right. Go knock on his door, i say, I'm finished. What do you think? Oh, he says, I love it. That looks great. And he says, that I'm just out of the generosity of my heart, I've, I've decided I'm going to give you a $1,000. Whoa, buddy, whoa, get off your horse there, Roy Rogers. This was not an act of grace on your part. You owed me that money. I earned it. So to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So Paul is saying, you don't think this was found in the Old Testament. Well, look at Abraham. He was the George Washington of Judaism. He got it all started. And books are written about him. He was a great man. He wasn't perfect, but he was a great man. If anybody you would think could have earned his way in, it would have been Abraham. But what do the scriptures say? He didn't do it by works. He did it by faith. His righteousness came by faith. Now let's look at another example. Let's take somebody who was very popular. If there was a Mount Rushmore in in, in Israel's day, uh, they would have had Abraham up there, I'm sure. Uh, They probably would have had Moses. And surely they would have had King David because King David was unlike any of the, the king's that had ruled over uh, Judah. But what do we know about King David? Uh, he had a real heart for God. You know, he uh, the scriptures say that that he uh, he he had just he had that he had a heart for the Lord. But you know, he was out on his rooftop one day, and he said, "Hey, Fred, uh, who's the who's the chick on the rooftop over there?" "Oh, that's Bathsheba, and uh, she's married to a, one of the soldiers." And he said, "Whoa, you know, she she's pretty." And I think that I would like to, to make her you know, my wife or at least a part of my harem or whatever. And uh, he finds out that the only way that he's going to be able to do that is to get rid of the, the husband. So he says, when y'all go back to the front lines, I want you to put him on the front. And then y'all slowly, quietly withdraw and just leave him out there by himself. And he was, he was killed. So he's an adulterer. Uh, he's complicit to murder. He ordered the murder of the husband of Bathsheba. Uh, and according to the law that he lived under in his day, he should have been stoned to death. But God was gracious and spared him. And when he was convicted of his sin, uh, he repented. Uh, and so verse 6 and following uh, uh, he 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 wants to then talk about about David, after talking about uh, Abraham. Uh, I can't find where, where I had it. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, he says he quotes he quotes uh, David from Psalm uh, thirty-two, and this is after his confession and contrition to what happened with uh, Bathsheba and and her husband. He says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And he's, he's speaking from experience. Believe me, I know how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That is, it's covered by the blood. It's covered by what Christ did on the cross. How blessed, verse 2, is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So he's writing in this psalm extolling the greatness of God and how blessed is a man who ought to be dead, but God chose not to impute his iniquity. And he allowed him to live. And toward the end of that same psalm, he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Here's a man who has experienced forgiveness. Here's a man who's been re energized. Here's a man who now wants to extol God and his goodness and his grace. Here's a man who understands what it is uh, to be, uh, be righteous. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you. Who are upright in heart. So Paul is saying, you want to know how far back this goes? It, well, it, it goes back to Abraham, because that's how he was saved. He was saved by faith, not by works. It even goes back to David, because David, uh, Abraham would, would seem to be a man who could have gotten there by works, but he didn't, and he couldn't have. David is obviously a man who, while he was a great man... He could never have extolled his works as a way to to please God. He was in big trouble before God and before the law that God had given to them. But because of God's love for him and his repentance, God did not impute the judgment upon David that he deserved. And so he's saying, rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy all those who are upright in heart. I love that song, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. That's not a motive to sin, but it's a wonderful reminder that God's grace is greater than our sin. And there's nothing we have ever done or will do that was not on Christ at the cross when he was at the cross and God put the sins of the world on him you might say well how many of my sins were were future at that time the answer would be all of them this was 33 AD and I was born in 1948 but he died for all my sins the past present and future God's grace is greater than our sin Uh, President Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963. And I remember watching in the television commentator, he made this statement. He said, President Kennedy has gone to his reward. And I don't know the eternal destination of President Kennedy. But if he is in heaven, it's not on the basis of his reward. It's on the basis of God's grace through faith, in jesus christ you would think that any church that calls itself a christian church would believe that and would be proclaiming that but there was an article in the birmingham paper this past summer and it involved a, a church here in birmingham cathedral church of the advent and one of the staff persons was a pastor named andrew pearson and he is giving a, a Greg Garrison, he's t- giving him uh, an interview telling him why he has chosen to leave that Episcopal church. And he's starting a, a new church that's going to be identified with the Anglican church. And it, it's, it's lengthy, but I transcribed just a portion of it. You, you just have to listen to this. Pearson said his meetings with the diocesan leaders though mostly cordial, sometimes developed into theological disputes over the identification of Jesus and the meaning of the crucifixion that he didn't think was necessary. Quote, I got really tired about arguing over who Jesus is and arguing over what the Bible is and what its role is in the life of the church, he said. Quote, those things are very important and ought to be discussed. But those conversations were taken to a level that's, that, that's shameful that a denomination would have to have those conversations. You see that in the emphasis laid in the Episcopal Church on Jesus, he is a way of love. That Christianity is about emulating Jesus and loving one another in the way Jesus loves us. That is part of Christianity. But that's a deficient view Of the Christian faith. Amen to that. Uh, That's a deficient view. Of the Christian faith. It's a deficient view. Of who Jesus is. And what he came to do. A Jesus who is just the way of love. Is a Jesus. Who can't save. Amen. Uh, I I might have to take. Some things back. That I said about people. Who came out of the. Episcopal Church. Um, I've lost my place here. It certainly may help make, uh, make life a little better, and it may help our neighborhoods to be a little stronger, but when it comes to salvation, he came to die, and to die for a very specific purpose. I would often engage in conversations with leaders of the diocese, and at given points, it was clearly said, That Jesus' death on the cross was just a political accident. And that his death would have been just as effective as if he had died of pneumonia. That if the cross is anything, it's just an event. It's reduced to an example of, quote, see how he loves us, unquote. Rather than the cross being the moment where God is reconciling the world to himself. Because Jesus, his death is an atonement for our sins. He is a substitution on our behalf. I was always very careful in these conversations. Sounds like he was listening to our sermon. And I'm certainly glad to know that there's at least one man who even though he's come out of the Episcopal Church, I'm glad to know that there's one man who understands biblical theology concerning Christ and concerning our redemption in Christ Jesus. Because there is a denomination right now who is saying that Jesus' death is, would make no difference if he died of pneumonia or COVID. They're saying that it was just a political thing. It, it, it really had no no spiritual issue at stake. He wasn't dying for the sins of the world. He was dying because he was on the wrong side of a political issue. And they needed to get rid of him. And to think that there are Christian churches that are teaching that. And they're teaching their people that it's okay to be sexually active outside of marriage. Just make sure you have a condom. And by the way, they were passing them out to their men that article is is something to read but i thought it tied in as a way to bring to a close uh, my, my message today now you know why i called it the joy of righteousness when we have god's righteousness it brings joy into our life it brings security it brings satisfaction to know that the god of heaven the god of creation While he is going to bring judgment on a sinful world one day, I won't be part of that. Because he's already judged me in Christ Jesus. And my faith in him has given me his righteousness and the hope of eternity. I can sleep tonight not knowing when I'm going to die, but I can sleep tonight confident that when that day comes, I know where I'm going. Uh, He's not going to say, well, it's a little problem, George. The wages of sin went up 20% this year. None of that's going to happen. Whatever I owed, it was paid, paid in full. And that's why on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. If he's not referring to the work of atonement, I challenge you to figure out what he was talking about. He was saying it's done and the father is satisfied he'll never ask for more all that was needed was provided and on the basis of that you can have freedom from sin in terms of its penalty you can have freedom from the power of sin in this life because the spirit dwells in us and one day you'll have freedom from the very presence of sin when you are glorified to spend all eternity with Christ. I challenge you, if you haven't already done so, ask yourself, am I ready to meet my maker? And will I meet him as my maker? Or will I meet him as my father? With a relationship through his son, Christ Jesus. What will that cost me? Well, it'll cost you nothing but faith. And I don't have time to get into it, but I I realize that Christ makes demands on his people. But that's what sanctification is all about. He he begins to influence us to be the kind of people he wants us to be. But we're talking about justification. There's nothing you do except believe. And Christ takes residence in your life. I pray that all of us can say it is well with my soul Father I do thank you for your word may it always be like a cup of cold water out in the desert may it always refresh us and convict us of things but whatever you demand of us your grace uh, abounds even more and we have Enabling grace to do whatever it is that you want us to do. So why should we fear serving you and doing things that we say is not in our, uh, they're, they're not the things that I'm most comfortable doing. But in Christ, all things are possible. And may we be faithful in serving you and glorifying you until the day that you come for us.
1: Hold uh-huh.
0: so much for the cross, that it was finished there, Lord, and we just pray as we go out this week, Lord, that as we started off our service, Lord, that your name would be magnified in everything that we do, and that our heart's desire would be more of you, just like we just sang, and so be with us this week, and, um, and just help us to, to have a good week, a week that's um, honoring to you and all that we do, in your name we pray, amen. You guys are dismissed.